Hey friends, welcome to the Pledge Drive edition of Truth to Power here on Forward Radio with me, Justin Mogg. Uh, just so excited to be kicking off our fourth anniversary Pledge Drive. We need you to go to forwardradio.org and pledge to the station in celebration of our fourth birthday of broadcasting to you 24-7, 365, and never one single commercial, no corporate influence, no agenda other than the people's agenda. I know you appreciate it because I know you're listening. And so support your listening today by going to forwardradio.org. Now's the time to do it because you can pick up on some fantastic thank you gifts in return for your pledges right now through our birthday on April 9th. We've got great books, face masks, WFMP buttons, pins, a really nice insulated bottle to keep your beverages warm or cold, and t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, and hoodies from WFMP to keep you warm. Ceramic mugs, we got fine art, fantastic items, hand-stitched by the folks at Stitch who work with our refugee community here in Louisville. Man, there are so many great thank you gifts, and all we need from you is a birthday gift. So go to four Radio.org, pledge what you can today, become a member of this community radio station, and get more great programming like this. Well, we have a very special Truth to Power this week. Normally, we gather folks from around the community for a community conversation, but the conversation already happened this week. So, man, we had such a very special Louisville Sustainability Summit this year. I think it was the best summit ever. It took place on November 12th. It was all virtual this year, but the the conversations were still just awesome. And so I want you all to be able to listen into one of my favorite parts of the summit this year. Uh, the theme of the year was Climate Crossroads, exploring the intersection of climate change and social justice. And I can't think of a better way to do that than to share with you the regional panel on building an inclusive sustainability movement in Kentucky, featuring Carla Walker, climate advisor from the city of Cincinnati, Cassa Heron, a board member with Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, and Dr. Carolyn Finney, author of Black Faces, White Spaces, three incredible black women who just were on fire on this summit, and I want you to hear every bit of it. So with no further ado, I'm going to take you back to November 12th, let you listen in to the Louisville Sustainability Summit here on Truth to Power. I'm incredibly energized by what's happening in Louisville and just love the work that you all are doing. You all are always a a go-to city. I don't know if y'all know that uh, for Cincinnati, but we do take a look at some of those sister cities that we work with and see what you all are doing to see what learnings that we can take from you. And so it's an honor to have an opportunity to speak with you two women today. Let me start out with a general question. I would love to hear your story. Cassie, we'll start with you. Your story and your your journey of what was it that got you into this work, into sustainable development, environmental work? What was the day like? What happened? What was the issue? And what was it that was like, whatever it was, what was the catalyst that made you think, whatever happens, this is going to be with me for some time? Well, good afternoon. I'm thankful to the council for having me and tickled to be in community with you two ladies. Good to see you again, um, Carolyn. It's nice to meet you, Carla. We, as KFTC members, we are members of the Climate Justice Alliance. Uh, I'm a proud Kentuckian. I was born and raised in Richmond, Kentucky, in Madison County. I am a, a daughter or great niece of um, sharecroppers. 
and cattle and tobacco producers. Uh, my mother talks about the family farm that she grew up on as being diversified because they had to be diversified. There were 10 of my mother and her siblings. And she talked about the garden being very similar to the Garden of Eden. She was like, we had everything. We had two meats at breakfast because the family was so big and we had it and we, we were able to feed the family off of the farm. As a child, I remember placing in my science fair because I had a solution to the Exxon oil spill in Alaska. And it wasn't until I graduated from college that I really tapped back into those agrarian roots. I think I learned some about the challenges in uh, the food system around like environmental issues when I was doing some union organizing. Um, it was the first union or first organizing opportunity that I got to have as a college student. And I met other organizers who had organized on factory farms. I knew that that was a thing here, particularly in Western Kentucky, but hadn't heard those stories. And so hearing those stories from organizers, young people who had been working with those workers, a light bulb went off. And when I graduated college and decided that I didn't want to teach middle school math and English, I found myself around organizers here in the city who were concerned about our local um, merger. Our city and county government was merging. And this group was really concerned about what that would do specifically to Black political representation and were organizing around what a people's agenda would look like in a merged government. And I met a young woman who worked for Community Farm Alliance. CFA is a statewide membership organization that had really been focused on small farms and small farm policy issues on the state. The organization had been successful in helping to make sure that half of our master tobacco settlement funds in Kentucky were put into agriculture diversification and put forth a vision for local food system development in our state. Post-tobacco, what does an agricultural transition look like in our state and how can we start feeding ourselves and benefit from all the all the parts of the food system here in Kentucky, both um, economically, but also socially and nutritionally and all the things, save the, save the farms and put people back to work. People forget that the tobacco industry sent kids in West Louisville to college the same way it allowed family farmers to send their kids to college. The tobacco industry really impacted our whole state, both urban and rural communities. And so this vision of local food system development in Kentucky was a way to transition our agricultural economy and really continue to benefit from these farms. So I found myself in an interview that didn't feel like an interview, but it felt more like an elder giving me my charges. This is what your state looks like. I didn't know all that history about our state, particularly, you know, the, the economics behind it. And I took a job as an organizer, organizing farmers markets um, right out of, out of college. And local food system work has been a part of who I am um, since then. So that's a part of my story. Amazing. Amazing. The impact that you, you've you had and it's wonderful to hear all of that and how you're rooted in, uh, in this work in more ways than one, quite literally, actually. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Carolyn, I'd love to hear <laughs> your story. Um, big fan of your work. So please um, share with us how you got involved in sustainability. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, first of all, thank you, Carla, Cassia, Ellen, everybody for inviting me back to Kentucky. So just I just need to be transparent. So I lived in Lexington for four years, but a year ago I moved to Vermont because I'm doing this residency. So I'm not there physically, 
but I'm there in spirit. So I'm really glad to be in conversation. So whenever I'm asked this question, and I'm always trying to tell that truncated version, but I always tell people it's always interesting to talk about a thing when you are the thing itself. For me, it's not simply about sustainability. And whenever anybody asked me about sustainability, I said, what is it that we're trying to sustain? Because for me, it's if we don't, if we can't answer that question, it doesn't matter to me what we're doing after that because it's all about relationships and it's not just about relationship to nature and the environment and all those issues. It's about our relationship to each other. And this for me is where the question of race, difference, power, and privilege come into play. And so for me, it's really personal. That's the other thing. It's personal. Yeah, it's political, but it's also intimate. Um, I talk about where I grew up. Uh, my parents are originally from Virginia. They grew up poor. They grew up black, you know, back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. When my dad came back from the Korean War, they went north like a lot of black folks did that time because so, he thought he could get a better job. They went to the state of New York. And the job that my father ended up taking was 30 minutes outside of New York City in Westchester County. There was a large estate, a 12-acre estate that belonged to a wealthy Jewish family. My parents took that job. They were the full-time caretakers, gardeners. My father was the chauffeur. My mom was a sometime housekeeper. We had to live on that estate in the gardener's cottage. Parents thought they couldn't have kids, and so they adopted me. But then they did have kids. I always like to say they relaxed. So I have two brothers. So we were the only family of color in this neighborhood, a very wealthy, all-white neighborhood up until the 90s. And when I say very wealthy, I always say Harry Winston down the street, golf course around the corner, give you the kind of idea of the money that was there. Um, this estate is stunning. A lake, a swimming pool, vegetable gardens, fruit trees. It's just a beautiful, beautiful place to grow up. So me and my brothers were outside all the time. We had the privilege of engaging non-human nature in a very particular way. But the other story I always tell is at nine years old, I'm walking home from public school. I'm right around the corner from the house. There's always cops patrolling the neighborhood, getting stopped at nine years old by a white policeman in his car who wanted to know where I was going, giving him the address about where I was going, and then him looking at me and saying, oh, do you work there? And me thinking in my little nine-year-old head, like, what are you, what's he talking about? I live there. What's he talking about? And I just said, no, I live there. He let me go and go home. My father got angry, called the police station. The policeman never stopped me and my brothers again. But as an adult, and you all have heard these stories a thousand times, right? And this is how long for me this has been going on, at least personally, the impact that it had on challenging myself, my presence in this beautiful green space, my parents' presence. I want to jump ahead a little bit because when it got into the 90s, eventually both of the owners died. But when the last owner, the matriarch, was still alive, my parents have been caring for that land for 40 years at this point. So the labor, right, that they had put into caring for this place. She wanted to try to keep them on this land. This land was worth over $3 million, right? My, there was no way my parents were going to be able to stay on this land. She had a house built, for, a lovely home built for them back in Leesburg, Virginia. And she passed away. My parents stayed on until 2003 with the new owners because they always have to find somebody else. And they found a family from the Dominican Republic that took over my parents' job. So at this point, they've cared for this land for almost 50 years. When my parents moved in 2003, at this point, and there's a you know, side story that I can't tell you. I, my life, is like a lot of us, is not linear. I was an actor for 11 years. I spent better part of five years backpacking through Africa and parts of Asia. I went back to school in my mid-30s, got three degrees. So at this point, I'm working on my doctorate, and I'm really thinking about these things. I've been thinking about gender and social justice and environment. And I started thinking about race, and I started thinking about race and environment right here at home. Because what happened when my parents moved in 2003, they received a copy of a letter from the Westchester Land Trust. And one of the things that land trusts do is they go around the country and they can put conservation easements on pieces of property that are deemed 
worthy of being protected and cared for in perpetuity so nothing can be changed. So they do some really good work. We can have a conversation about whose land was that in the first place, but that's another conversation, right? So my parents got a letter saying that there's a conservation easement had been placed on this piece of property that I grew up on that my family had cared for. And the letter, and I have a copy of it, went on to talk about all the environmental values of that property and why it should be protected, the wildlife, where it sits in the watershed, all the values. At the end of the letter, it thanked the new owner for his conservation mindedness. He'd been on it for three years. There'd been nothing thanking my parents who cared for that land for nearly 50 years. And at that point, it really got personal because just that fast, they were erased. All their labor, all their love, all their knowledge, that embodied knowledge of place, which for me has nothing to do with formal education, right? And so I started thinking about all the people in the country, actually, who have become erased in our history. We have conversations about sustainability. And for me, we often go to black and brown communities and or poor communities as though they don't know anything. And I will say, hello, not only have they been fighting and living in their space for their entire lives, They've been carrying the work of their ancestors for 400 years, right? Even going back to some of what Cassia was saying as well. And so for me, it's really about how do we acknowledge that? How do we reconcile that? That's kind of the short version. I'm an accidental environmentalist. I never call myself that. <laughs> never call themselves an environmentalist. What I've understood is that some of the, a platform kind of opened up where people were saying, you know, we want to understand, let me get really clear, where predominantly white or environmental organizations were saying mm -hmm. that they actually want to think differently about engaging communities of color in a variety mm -hmm. of ways, not just as some outreach that they do to assist them, but the idea that those communities have leaders who can make the decisions that maybe they should mm -hmm. be paying attention to. And so what does it look like to build that kind of relationship? So there's a lot of other things I can say from serving on the National Parks Advisory Board, but you know, I like to remind people that, you know, we're all biased, but biased isn't a bad thing. But if you want to talk to me about racism and prejudice, it's a close relationship. And part of it is claiming our own positionality and being real with where we stand and our own history and questioning ideas of ownership and who gets mm -hmm. to say they belong and whose land was this anyway, since all of it was stolen in the first place. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I'm nodding my head furiously. I mean, that really gets us into this next question, which is a whole other topic, right? So this whole session is all about like building inclusivity in the sustainability movements here in Kentucky. Yes. And I'm curious from both of you all's perspectives, how can that be done, right? So what are you all seeing in the work that you've done in Kentucky where the movement has been historically racist and exclusionary, which I might add is, I want to say par for the course, but that would mimic what we see nationally anyhow. But if we bring this down to a local level, what are some of the experiences in working in this space that you've seen where the sustainable movement in Kentucky has been historically racist and exclusionary? I'd love to, to hear what, what you've been um, working with. Well, I'll continue with my story. So I, I organized the farmer's markets for a couple of years and pretty quickly I learned that there was a whole nother part of the city or just this work that I didn't know about. Community members started seeing me as an expert in all things development related. They saw the farmer's markets as a way to re-energize their commercial corridors. They had other development dreams and, and visions. If we could have a farmer's market, we could have a pet store and we can have a bakery. 
And, you know, maybe we can have a grocery store eventually. And so I started getting questions about land bank property and planning and zoning. And I had no idea what that was. And I met a Black architect who worked for the city. He introduced me to urban planning. And I went to school to study our region and started questioning what's the role of local governments and what's the role of the urban planning profession in supporting and enhancing a local food system. I mentioned that we were going through merger. And so I came back and I worked in our economic development department under Mayor Jerry Abramson, who was Abramson. our longtime mayor. He was the first mm-hmm. merger mayor, but Mayor Fisher has really been the first you know, real mayor since merger. And under his administration, I really pushed our economic development team and our director to really push our mayor to answer that question. What is the role? And we helped lay the groundwork for what Mayor Fisher was really able to step into is the development of a farm to table program in local government and an office, a department, a person who was really focused on getting rid of the red tape between helping farmers build and access markets in the city and helping to, you know, open up the doors really for, for local food system development in our city. And over the years, I, I eventually, well, I worked for about 18 months in local government and was laid off when the market turned turned down. I served as a local um, consultant with the local government and several nonprofits around this work. We created a food policy council that uh, was started and stopped because the new mayor, Mayor Fisher, um, our policies and our, our strategies were not in line with his strategies. And what we have seen under a democratic, liberal, I wouldn't say he's progressive mayor, is lip service to the work um, that the folks who were, I was working with with the farmers markets, the visions that folks created around wanting to have local food systems across the Kentucky be minimized to bourbonism and local burgers and high-end restaurants, craft beer Mm -hmm. and stadiums. And we've seen grocery stores. It's it's almost like you're in Cincinnati. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yes, your, your corporate partner in Cincinnati is closing grocery stores in our communities the same way. They're closing them there and nearly, you know, three terms into a mayor who really championed local food. And I like to say that he won his primary uh, because he really elevated that. I find myself as a developer of a grocery store because he and his team and nobody else has, has figured out how to do that. And I would imagine that if I was a young white girl from a nice family who decided that she wanted to open a a grocery store in her community that she probably wouldn't even have to do that, that she would have had the seat with those those corporate leaders in Kroger to suggest to them that it doesn't make sense to close a grocery store in uh, Old Louisville where you have seniors who live in apartment buildings and don't have access to medicine that they need and they have to uh, be picked up by a public transportation once a week to be taken to the Kroger that's Mm -hmm. miles and miles away from their homes or that it doesn't make sense to leave vacant a piece of property that has been vacant in our community for 20 years and not put anything on it. And so my story, I'm a testament of the racism and uh, mm-hmm. the lack of being inclusive, not because I'm so, someone special, but just because that I have done the work and have listened to people and have been doing the organizing. And if mm-hmm. I would have getting, had the opportunity to be at, at seats and tables, we wouldn't have spent tons, hundreds of millions of dollars on things that the community didn't need and find ourselves in a position where we went from having a piece of property that folks envisioned having food being grown and processed and sold 
to us now having a track facility that we hope encourages mm -hmm. restaurants and, and grocery stores to open because we now have a new track in our community. Yes, it's it's we've we've experienced something similar with um, Kroger here in Cincinnati and a number of our African American neighborhoods. Sadly, um, same uh, exact kind of process. Carolyn, you spoke when you were talking about your story, you mentioned that the letter that was sent to the new family once the easement was uh, was put in place didn't mention your family at all. This yeah. this idea that they could somehow be, well, not somehow, that they were literally erased, that, that history and investment that they made was literally erased. And I feel like that also is, that's really a testament to the story of racism and being historically racist and systematically removing or eliminating the impact that black and brown families and black and brown people have in the environmental movement. I'm curious in this in the people that you have met and the stories that you tell, are there other um, is there one other story that might uh, ring true to this that you could share that someone was literally put in all the work? but may not be getting that credit or that recognition. Just as another example of us being systematically eliminated uh, from, from, this, from this space. Yeah, and um, I, re I really appreciate, I just wanna really appreciate what Cassia was saying because she yeah. had sort of local experience, but also how much of it resonates for me nationally too in this country in a very particular way. And, you know, I have so many stories, so my head is just going, <laughs> so partly where I want to stop, start with the idea, because sometimes we don't even have to tell the individual story of a person as an anecdote, but to understand, you know, how black and brown people have been systematically erased from, you know, thinking about who we are collectively as Americans in this country, right? So just uh, for me, it's happened across the board in every instead of institutions you can think of, political, the media, um, um, academia, we've been erased. And in part, we've been erased in my humble, humble opinion is that when you've stolen the land from the indigenous people who lived there and killed some of them off, and then when you've enslaved another group of people to work you know, the land for free and build the backbone of our economy, you have to do some psychological maneuvering to make that okay in your head. How to do that and at the same time acknowledge what black and brown people have been putting into the land and into this place and into our lives. And so somewhere foundationally, I think it's embedded in there because that would mean you'd have to look in the mirror. That would mean you would actually have to reconcile and acknowledge and be willing to consider your own privilege in a perfect way. I wanna say that there are, for me, are a lot of people in the mainstream environmental movement doing that, who are recognizing this now. Now I can be a little cynical and say, when George Floyd was murdered, what happened was, you know, in the long line of black people getting murdered for be just being black, you know, the camera went on a lot of people in a lot of states in this country and a lot of companies and people are going, oh my God, what have we done? Having spent my time working with a lot of predominantly white businesses and organizations, I also think there are a lot of good people who are really trying to think differently and just haven't got a clue what to do because they've never had to do it before, right? And somehow confuse this idea that even if we call you liberal, progressive, or a Democrat, that somehow that means you're already awoken there. And what they're finding out is actually, no, you may be awake, but that other thing, you know, that actually comes from, for me, years of practice and better than that, years of commitment because you actually have to be willing to let go of some things in order to make room for others. I think that, 
you know, the way, just so I had this thought that for black and brown people, the way we're educated in school, we're, we're told stories about white people doing things all the time. So when I think about, let's take Greta Thunberg. I love Greta Thunberg, man. As a young activist, kicking butt all over the place around climate change. I'm all with her. I support her. I get her. The problem I have is not with her, but the idea that somehow she's been uplifted as the young person, the, the what do they call it, the Greta effect, and all the other black and brown people, young folks are stuck. Wait a minute, they've been jumping up. Mary Coatney since nine in Flint, Michigan has been jumping up and doing this long before. And we start looking at all these other, other young activists of color who've been doing this work for a long time. So for me, it's more of a question of where are the resources, where is the access, who's getting uplifted, and once again, and whose story is being told. Right. So the erasure is something embedded into our DNA, our American DNA in a very particular way. We don't want to call always call it erasure. You know, we just didn't see, you know, the blinders are on. And that's a choice. Right. Because to look actually costs something. It means you have to actually change. I have to be able to look at somebody who doesn't look like me and see their humanity and imagine and think about the work that I have to do to build what I would consider a really a sustainable relationship so we can decide how we want to move forward together. Everything, Cassie, everything about food deserts, you know, understanding redlining, gentrification, all of that stuff has happened in large part because we could ignore what we say we don't know about because they've been erased. Mm -hmm. But they've always mm -hmm. been there and they're still yeah. there, actually. They're still there. Yeah. It's key. You were talking about that relationship. It's really, you know, the, the individual relationships that we have with one another. When we talk about good folks who are really trying to understand this, our, um, our non-BIPOC brothers and sisters who are really trying to support the work that's being done, for me, allyship and being an ally, that was a that was a new term for me. And um, I, I have a cousin of mine. She and I are fascinated by the the um, whiplash change in terminology and language and how it's used and what have you. And so there's an awful lot of conversation around how do we build allyship? How do we build allies? So I'm curious if the two of you, you know, what does that term mean? for you in the work that we do? How, how, would you how would you define it? And then what does it actually look like for you? Yeah. So that, you know, and in responding to this, I'm thinking about like, how do we, I don't want to get to educating the, the white audience, but how does it look to really be an ally? So folks really understand what, 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 what that really should mean. I'm an organizer, so I'm going to tell another story. Go right ahead. <laughs> I love that. So I love it. I, I recently had uh, a couple of white ladies who run um, an organization in our city say that they want to have a conversation with me. And um, many of us may have heard people say, hey, I want to pick your brain. And what Black women have learned when someone says they want to pick your brain is, I want you to tell me how, how to spend this money that somebody gave me that I shouldn't have gotten in the first place. Or I want you to help me do this job that I didn't deserve in the first place. Yes. So these women, I know them. We've developed a relationship over time. And um, they were they were wanting a thought partner. And it's the middle of COVID. And we're all stressed out. And we want to have a drink. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we want to figure out how to be in community <laughs> with each other. So they packed up food and drinks and brought their own chairs. And we had a conversation in my driveway and about um, 
their work and what they were coming up against and how the work that I'm engaged in could complement their work or support their work or how we could be in community with each other over great margaritas and a nice mm. uh, pot roast and egg noodles. <laughs> it was the best thing, you know, and I know these women, so it wasn't, you know, one of them said, you know, I didn't want to be forward, but I did bring, you know, pot roast and, um, and some egg noodles in case you, you know, you needed, uh, you know, just a, a hot meal. And I was like, thanks, because I'm working on dinner. It was like four o'clock. I mm. started working on half dinner, half the dinner, and I hadn't had lunch. And so it was mm. great um, for me. And it it really showed me who they are and how they show up. I know who they are, mm-hmm. but it was really an example of them using the resources that they had and respecting my time, respecting the time that I was giving them. And they knew that they were, we were going to have fruitful conversation. And it was them respecting who I am and not coming into the conversation with, well, we're just going to pick her for everything that she's got and move on to our next thing. I appreciated it more than what they even expected. Um, and and oftentimes, uh, particularly as Black women, I can speak as a Black woman, because uh, I've, and I've had plenty of girlfriends give me calls. She called me and said that she wanted to pick my brain. And, you know, now she's doing this thing and it's the very thing that I just told her. It happens more than enough. Yes. And so yeah. allyship, what allyship means to me is that people use their privilege to make room and space for, um, that you lean into conversations with a listening ear first, um, that you're humble and thoughtful um, with the folks that you're engaging and that you're engaging with them, understanding the dynamics of power and that you go into it with an intention on building a partnership, a collaboration, and not just you know milking somebody for all that they have. Mm-hmm. Yes. And just breaking in quick to remind listeners that you're tuned into Ford Radio 106.5 FM. And this is Truth to Power. We're hearing highlights this week from the Louisville Sustainability Summit held on November 12th, all virtual this year on Climate Crossroads, exploring the intersection of climate change and social justice. You can learn more at LouisvilleSustainabilityCouncil.org. And what we're listening to is the regional panel on building an inclusive sustainability movement in Kentucky with Carla Walker, climate advisor for the City of Cincinnati, Cassa Heron, board chair of Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, and Dr. Carolyn Finney, author of Black Faces, White Spaces. And with no further ado, we take you back to the Louisville Sustainability Summit. Yes. Can I just roll in on that one? Yes, on? please do. <laughs> you speak in truth. You speak in truth. Go ahead. I just said to, uh, so one of the things that happens, so my, my full-time work is really to, I have this public platform, so I work, sometimes it's just public speaking, sometimes it's consulting and advising with organizations, businesses, often predominantly white environmental organizations and businesses to think, to think about a lot of the issues we're talking about today. Um, and just, it happened just last week that somebody on a Zoom call, and it's a, and my work has exploded. So before, mm-hmm. you know, I, might, I was usually on a plane once a week flying somewhere trying to do this stuff in person to have those dinners, like, you know, build those relationships. Now everything is on Zoom, but it exploded after this summer, right? Last week, somebody just, it just happened. It was, a, I, you know, I don't even remember which organization, but what, she said, you know, pick your brain. And I just stopped her. And I did it in a different way because I just said, I said, so I'm happy to have a conversation with you and think about how we can be in a relationship, but I cannot allow you to pick my brain because here's what it means. And she, and I just said it very gently because I did, I said, I don't want to, I'm not trying to shut you down. I'm just trying to 
give you a different perspective of what that means. Um, mm -hmm. I thought of two stories as well. One, and this was in line, something with Cassie, and this is just recently, I'm working with um, the UN Foundation, a group called um, Clean Cooking. And what they did, the C of these four women who sort of run this organization, we had two Zoom calls where the first one was like, tell us stories about who you are and how you got here. Let's get to know each other. We spent the first, you know, two Zoom calls. That's all we were doing. That was the intention, right, from, first of all. So really, this idea, and it made me want to work with them. Like, I didn't even know what the deal was going to be. But I just thought, mm -hmm. this is great because that means my whole self can show up, which means your whole self can show up, which means we're creating space for emergence and possibility, right? A um, couple of mm -hmm. things that I want to follow up on. Um, I work with the Next 100 Coalition, which is a group of um, organizations of color and individuals of color around the country back in 2016, who came together in D.C. because we wanted to see if we could push the Obama administration to pass um, this proclamation that all the the agencies, the Park Service and Forest Service, all those land management agencies would have to actively consider diversity inclusion in what they mm -hmm. were doing. For us to do that, it meant we had to be going to Capitol Hill and meeting people and doing op-eds and media outlets and traveling all around. Most of us didn't have that kind of money to do that. The organization who backed it was a white organ environmental organization out in um, Colorado, and they provided all the money they, would, they provided all the access. They made sure we had it. The woman who always came would sit in the background. She would always sit. And we'd always say, come to the table. With and she'd go, no, I, this is for you. All, for the entire year, they did that. And I said, I have never seen that happen before. They had, because mm -hmm. it was a lot of money. It was a lot mm -hmm. of money to get all of us engaged and involved, both locally where we lived, as well as nationally. And to also mm -hmm. learn, for some of us, who had never been to Capitol Hill and what does it mean to go like knock on doors and, and, or talk with the press or, you know, so there was also a learning experience there so we could build our own skill set to do that. Um, uh, finally, there's, oh, the thing that I always say, and this also points to, I think, I don't know if you were thinking this, Cassia, when you said it, but it's not only about, you know, I tell folks, it's like, I don't do this work primarily because I'm looking to make a lot of money. I do this work because I passionately believe in it. And I also got to make a living. And also, if you think, and I say this in the most gentle way, because I don't know about you, but, you know, early on doing work around diversity, it's amazing how many organizations think they can just get that information for free. Your expertise, your time, your emotional labor, you know, all of that ducking and weaving that I feel like sometimes I, you know, I have to think strategy. If I'm going with a predominantly white group, I want to meet them where they are. Which means that I, there's maybe some barbs coming my way unintentionally because they haven't yet done the self-assessment and haven't built their capacity to engage difference in a way that serves the relationship. Mm -hmm. But I've decided to make myself vulnerable and do that work. You have to compensate people for that time. That doesn't mean, you know, that, that if you have to pay them. I'm not saying how much money that is or that it's always money, but it should be about a relationship of reciprocity. Allyship is about reciprocity mm -hmm. and being really mm -hmm. honest with about where both of you are. And for me, it's the longevity. Diversity and inclusion is not an end game or end goal. It's a process. It's ongoing. I always say we've been diverse yeah. ever, ever since Christopher Columbus got lost. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so but this that that longevity. Yes. I'd love to hear from you guys about this. We're in a process now in Cincinnati with some of the folks that I work with, uh, just kind of exploring. Um, 
bringing equity into the work that we're doing in, in climate change. And so I always share with people like the time horizon to get things done at it, through local government, right? Is very different. It's not to me based in reality. So um, there's a miss, a fundamental misunderstanding or disconnect or rejection of the idea and thought that you need to go into our communities or any community and put the time in to develop the relationship. So at the local level, they're down, you know, in Kentucky, especially in Louisville, um, there are so many now a number of other issues that are so blatantly in our faces. Um, and I'm talking about the, um, you know, Rihanna Taylor's and, and everyone else who's, you know, I, I'm, I'm just curious at the local level there in, in Louisville, how are you all working with folks to get them to understand coming into our communities now? Um, yes, we need to do that. We need to all be working together, but it's going to take some time. How do we rebuild that trust um, or build trust to, to bring more people into the, the, uh, these, um, these programs and these activities and these initiatives and this work so that we can move forward in, 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 in a sustainable movement together that is more inclusive. How do we do that in Louisville with everything that's happening right now? I think that folks are going to have to keep showing up. You know, in 2016, when it happened, I'm, I'm feeling similar to the results of the election now than I did when I did then. I said, well, folks in, on the federal level aren't going to care about the fact that we're building a cooperative grocery store. Let's just dig deeper on, on what that is. And mm -hmm. we have continued to dig deeper in that work. And we continue to dig deeper in that work. And I've been telling folks who have access, influencers, leaders, that the time is changing. And because there have been a handful, a couple, two, three Black people that have been given invitations at some tables, folks are going to have to listen to Black people that they never even knew existed because you failed to listen to those that were once given access. Um, young people, and I'm not young. <laughs> I don't, uh, people think I'm young. I look a little young, but I'm not. Um, I'm, I will be 42 in a, a couple of weeks. Good genes, girls. Good genes. <laughs> when I talk to people, well, you know, young people in their 20s, they're miles ahead of us. They don't use the same rules that we do, and they're fed up. And they would rather vote for a Kanye West than choose two options that they don't want to choose. And they don't care about the systems. They don't care about the old ways. I wanted to share a graphic of the leaders that I work with in my community. When we decided that we were going to build our own grocery store, we literally had to create that infrastructure. And we went into it thinking we were just going to figure out how to build a grocery store. But what we are actually building is a cooperative ecosystem in our community. So we uh, launched the Louisville Association for Community Economics in 2017 as our nonprofit educator and developer to educate the community about cooperative economics and to help start mm. and incubate cooperatives. And then the Louisville Community Grocery is the first cooperative that we're incubating. And if you can take a look at the pictures, this is our leadership. Mm. We have um, eight board members on our nonprofit board. Of those members, two of them are white mm -hmm. and the rest of them are, are of color. Five of us are black. Four of us are black on the lace board. On the grocery store board, on the co-op board, we have three of eight people are white on our co-op board. 
Look at all the women across the board. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Look at all yeah, the black that, women in leadership. Yeah, Letitia that, that, that is really um, a joint rep. She serves as a rep between to coordinate uh, between the boards. Of the 17 leaders, 10 of us are black women. Mm. Mm. This is what leadership looks like in our community. And I hope that when we have our next round of leadership, we find a younger person to serve. I'm looking at our board, maybe Denisha or Chantrice might be the youngest, maybe in their 30s, Letitia in their early 30s. But we want to continue working on this and continue serving with each other and having that leaderful yes. uh, set of, of folks who are stepping in to do a thing that our our local government and our economy as is, hasn't been able to, bri- to, to provide for us. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the work is continuing to make space and create space for new leaders, mm-hmm. supporting them in all the ways. Um, this year, I was awarded a bridge fellowship from Common Future, and it's been a wonderful opportunity to rest. <laughs> to rest um, and to be able to step into a new a, a new way of making money as a, a community leader. I'm a writer. It's given me the opportunity to write and to get paid writing um, and figure out what I want to do in that way. But supporting mm-hmm. new leaders um, in, in non-traditional ways is yeah. also a way for us to pr- create space uh, for new leaders to serve in their communities. Yeah. That's beautiful. Elizabeth would call that the brilliance at the local level that's happening. That's beautiful to see. Curious, there was a comment in the chat. How do white activists figure out what to do next? I, got I think that's a great question, but let me throw that out to you too. How, how do they figure out what to do next? Uh, that is, uh, well, first, oh, yeah, I get asked this question a lot, right? Um, <laughs> and I think it's an I think it's a valid question, right? Yeah, it's a valid it's question. question. It's a valid question. So, and I have sort of different responses to it. One, I always say to people, to organizations and individuals, you need to do an internal assessment. You need to do mm. an internal assessment about your own bias, you know, about your own blind spots, about what you what it is you don't know, because there's a role. That, this is where self education comes in. You know, um, and so I working with another group of young people just this is just yesterday here in Vermont, that's a predominantly white state. And I was on Zoom and, you know, they all wanted to come to my three hour workshop. They were all there. Almost all of them were white handful. I think there were two or three people of color in a group of 20 who were not in three hours. And I had asked them, I said, you've got to come with your questions. Most of the white folks stayed silent. Who carried it were the students of color. I said, and this happens all the time. So unwittingly, what they did was perpetuate a certain kind of who's going to educate us on this, who's going to show up and take the risk and say something, who's going to be the one to point out, you know, where the tensions are. So part of it is doing an internal assessment about your ability to to show up in that way. What does it mean to actually build your capacity so that you, you know, I would say to people, you're going to make a mistake. You know why? Because you're human. Mm -hmm. Everybody makes a mistake. Everybody makes multiple mistakes. I make mistakes. The problem for me is not whether or not you will make a mistake. It's how you, as Cassia was saying, still show up anyway. How do you attend to the impact of your good intentions? When people say, but I had a good intention. Well, so, so, do, so do most of us. But that doesn't mean it won't have a negative impact. It's your ability to show up again and again and again, even if you're not invited back in right away. 
Right. And what does that mean in order to do that? And what does it need? How do you determine for yourself what it is you need? Um, mm -hmm. You know, we talk about courage all the time. I say to people, you know, you have to be willing to take a risk in order to gain. One of the struggles, I think, in this country, broadly speaking, for black and brown people in particular, have been that in order to gain freedom, to gain a lot of the things that we want, we've always had to take risks. Always, you know, you sort of live your life on a continuum of what kind of risks am I going to take today? Maybe it's just that I'm going to go jogging while black, or maybe it's actually I'm going to run for office, yeah. or maybe it's I'm going to move to this neighborhood, or maybe it's because I'm going to send my kids to the school. I mean, there's a, you know, a series of choices that you're always thinking about and juggling in your head. You get really, really good at it. Right. And so I, I, when I talk to potential white allies, it is saying that, you have to do the same. And you, I cannot tell you what those are for you. I can say broadly, you know, here's what you need to consider, but you only you can take the risk and you have to take the risk in order to gain, not because you're afraid of losing something, which means you mm -hmm. have to be willing to let go, right? Mm -hmm. You have to let go of that sort of center of gravity where whiteness has been privileged for so long and whiteness is not a bad thing. It's about power. So it's like, how do you, and you couldn't help yourself by, you know, you, None of us can help the skin we were born in, but understanding that if you really want to be an ally, it's like your ability to stand upright in that anyway, yeah. knowing that yeah. you, you do not need to be any less than you are, right? You just yeah. have to understand that this relationship requires something different, right, mm -hmm. to come to the table. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, Kessa, I, I just want to say this before we run out of time. The other really amazing thing I loved about you sharing that graphic with your um, boards is that, and you mentioned this a little bit ago, is that, um, you know, when all of this got like set off and caught fire earlier this year, even though a lot of us have been doing this work for, for a while, there were three or four, two or three of us who got the invitation to come to the meeting before the meeting, right? To have that conversation. And what I loved about seeing uh, with your graphic is that there are so many more people doing this work, even at the local level, right? There, there are a number of folks, do black and brown folks, especially black women, doing this work. I often have a conversation with folks when they're, you know, looking for the, um, the diversity hire. They'll say, well, you know, we don't really know any black folks. You know, you're black. You must know some black folks. Why don't you send this job description out to your people? But there are a number of other folks out there that, um, you know, who are doing this work and people don't really know them. What I want to, uh, ask you is um, the work that your organization is doing across different um, uh, with different organizations right Bef uh, uh, at the very end of uh, Elizabeth's uh, uh, talk she was saying uh, you and Uprose or you I think you were mentioning in the in intro that you um, work with Uprose and CJA and I'm curious if you could share how that how your organization works with other organizations right to be inclusive to 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 lift up diversity how do you do that in the space uh, that you are in there in Louisville so Elizabeth um, talked to us about this is all about organizing and us bringing people together. And communities some time ago were organized in different ways. Faith communities were really important uh, to some folks. 
um, civil rights organizations were important um, to folks. Unions have been strong. And our communities just look different. People don't have memberships to things like they used to, but they still are in networks. They still have a group of people that are in their village. They still have hobbies that they engage in. And so we have to learn how to meet people where they are. Um, you, one of the things that you mentioned uh, is another quick story. Um, there are a bunch of folks who are engaged in this work in some way who need to be brought to other tables, but there are tons of people who are, who, who live green lives, who are aspired to live them. Um, and everybody has problems paying their utility bills in, in our state. So how are we disconnecting the everyday people? I went over to a friend's house. Um, she's got three teenage daughters. And she came in and she was, you know, kind of raised her voice. And she was just like, why do y'all have the lights on? Why are you not using the free lights? And I was thinking, what What are the free lights? And I said, girl, what, what kind of free lights y'all got on? <laughs> you said, girl, they better open up these blinds and open up these curtains and let the sun in and turn Hello. And That's right. She's, you know, she's saving in the way in which she knows to save. And she's being environmentally friendly based on what mm-hmm. she knows and what's gonna be helpful to our family. And many of us across our communities, across our geographies, across skin color and and income levels, do and know things and know how to take care of our land, know how to take care of ourselves. And we have not engaged regular people enough in this conversation. And so for those folks who are saying, what should we do? We should just listen. We should find ways to listen and hear from people that we have not heard from. I'm excited next year about building across um, with brown communities in my in in my community. I, I moved uh, to Wyandotte Park. This is on the other side of Churchill Downs to track, and it's mm. a very diverse community. Um, it's I mean it's diverse in a lot of ways. You know, you got functioning crackheads that come through and cut your grass, and you know somebody's got a Confederate flag in their backyard, and we all live on the same block. Um, and so I'm interested in getting to know my neighbors more and building across these lines of difference that have been used to separate us that are gonna be critical to connecting us because we all want better schools. We all want Churchill Downs to clean up around our community. Uh, We all want our air to to be cleaner. And so what are the ways that we can combine to combine efforts? What are the ways that we can um, connect with each other just around culturally sharing as a way to open up conversations and share with each other? To get to that better understanding. I mean, that's really, again, it goes back to the relationships, right? Like you're never going to be able to work together if you don't understand or you don't have a good sense or backing uh, of, the, of, the, of the culture, uh, you know, the different cultures. We've got time for just one uh, question. I'm going to leave this uh, with uh, Carolyn. You're working on something right now. Um, it's a conversation you would have with John Muir, is this correct? So I think it's so appropriate, given this whole idea of, you know, we're trying to work on building this more inclusive, uh, sustainable movement in Kentucky. I would wonder, you know, what what would you say to Mr. Muir about... (laughs) (laughs) About, you know, uh, really just without, you know, 
uh, without releasing anything, you know, right, right, in the yeah. book and what you're working on. But yeah. this is a conversation, right? That really, I mean, this all started with him, yeah. father of the conservation movement. Yeah. Right. Um, but also, you know, deeply, deeply racist in terms yeah. of how he saw things. Here we are, 2020, 2021. What's your question to him about like what we need to know or what we should be doing different as we move forward? Well, thank you for asking that question. And, and there's kind of a two part, and I'll try to say it as succinctly as possible because I really want to point to, and Cassie made me, reminded me of the role the arts have in Kentucky because last year I was brought back in, the, the arts as a place to actually consider some of these questions and support and uplift and also provide spaces for self-care and introspection for those that need it and that want it um, because we want to be in it for the long game. Um, the thing that got me thinking about John Muir initially was in 2016. I don't think about John Muir. I mean, I lived in California for eight years and uh, Northern California. And I was just like, what is up? Everybody is all about John Muir out here when they talk about the environment. Um, in 2016, I was at some conference and they were asked a few of us to talk, uh, answer the question, is John Muir still relevant in the 21st century, right? And we had 10 minutes to answer and I had some time to prep for this. So I came in and I, and I said, I wanted to think about, I took one of John Muir's books, you know, back in 1867, he walked across the Southern states, including Kentucky, because he wanted to see the impact of war on the landscape. And the book is called A Thousand Mile Walk Through the Gulf in 1867. Right. And if you read the book, he's got these paragraphs where he waxes on about the beauty of nature and he's really attentive to that. He also says some pretty racist things about black people. And so in one breath, he's talking about nature and one breath, he's talking about black and he goes on and on right through the book. I want I considered what if a black woman had written that? And this mm. is what I said to the audience. So I came up with my own version and I called it a thousand mile walk was rough in 1867, and I created a character called Sojourner Washington Douglas. And what I imagined, I took real facts of lynchings that were going on in different places mm -hmm. in the South, what it meant to look like her because she couldn't pass, so she had to use the back roads in the woods. And I took it all the way up till 1940 when she died. And I even got to, you know, 1890 when I said Jim Crow was the man, 1900, Jim Crow was the man, Jim Crow was still the man. And the point that I was trying to make that, it was also a different perspective. I don't want to deny the experience John Muir had. The thing is, John Muir was racist. He was also a committed um, and thoughtful man when it came to thinking about nature, you know, that big capital and nature in a very particular way. As is a lot of people in the history of our country, they're complex. So for me, I don't need to throw him out in order for him to become relevant. I want to have a conversation with him in part because I want to bring my family story, a story of what it means to be Black. I, for me, it is not one story or the other. His story has been made the dominant story about how we should think about wilderness, the environment, how we should show up. It's mm. the reason why we've got national parks, all these conversations. He's in there whether we like it or not. Mm. I don't need to dismiss him in order to make space for me and my family and those who look like me. For me, it's what emerges when we bring the two together, when we can look clear-eyed at someone like the legacy of John Muir, what worked and all the things that didn't, his privilege as a man, as a white man in a very particular time, with the ears of the president, um, with the, you know, he had the ears of the president, all those opportunities. I actually want him to consider, you know, I mean, I wrote a funny scene, which I don't have time to read, to make it kind of funny that I've invited him over to my apartment, you know, for some green tea, <laughs> to see what happens. And he's kind of freaked out because he expects I'll be cleaning his house, but I'm not. 
you know, I, you know, and I just want to kind of have this conversation and open up not just a conversation about who he is and who I am, but who we are as a country, mm-hmm. where we've come from, the legacy of this moment is 400 years and how we can hold that. I ended up having a um, invited by the great, great grandson of John Muir this summer to have a, a conversation with him about it on a podcast because all that came out in the press in the summer about John Muir being yeah. raised the Air Club kind of owning it. And the rest of us going, yeah, we've been telling you that for a long time. But it doesn't mean we have to throw out everything about him because that's too easy. Cancel culture is way too easy, right. right? I want responsibility, I want accountability, and I want change. So mm-hmm. it gets back to what is it that we're trying to sustain? What is the relationships we need to rebuild, the ones we need to build, the ones we need to attend to? in order to really get to where what it is that we aspire, starting from where we actually are, not where we want to be, but where we are. Woof. Ladies, 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 ladies. And those who are in the audience, thank you guys so very much. This has been so exciting and um, inspiring and just so incredible to hear about your journeys and the work that you all are doing. Thank you, Kessa, for doing that work, doing the work in Louisville and making it happen. Thank you, Carolyn, for all of your work and sharing with us. I could talk to y'all for a long, long time. This has been awesome. Thank Thank you. And that's how the regional panel concluded at the Louisville Sustainability Summit on November 12th, featuring three amazing black women from our region who are making an inclusive sustainability movement in Kentucky happen. Carla Walker, climate advisor for the city of Cincinnati, Cassa Heron, board chair for Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, and Dr. Carolyn Finney, author of Black Faces, White Spaces. And that's about all the time we have for today here on Truth to Power. Thank you so much for tuning in. I want to remind you that we have just started our pledge drive in honor of our fourth anniversary of broadcasting great programming like to this to our community, which I guarantee you're not going to hear on any other stations in town. So if you support this kind of media, all the podcasts that we provide at forwardradio.org, the live streaming anywhere in the world, you can take Forward Radio with you on your next trip. And of course, our FM broadcast. Podcast right here in downtown Louisville from the historic Hebron building. If you support all that and want to back the volunteer power that makes this programming possible, you can help make it possible today at forwardradio.org during our pledge drive through April 9th. You can pick up on some fantastic thank you gifts for your donations at all kinds of level. The gifts start coming at just the $15 level. You could pick up on a lovely face mask. We have WFMP buttons, enamel pins. We have of books uh, like Durable Trades, which is a book I featured on Sustainability Now this past week. We got brand new WFMP t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, and hoodies never available before. Now you can get them at forwardradio.org. We have a bunch of great items from local crafts folks, including some volunteers here at Forward Radio who've made some great handmade dishcloths, uh, local ceramics artists who've made mugs and vases available to you, and then a bunch of great stuff from Stitch, which is a local organization that helps uh, refugee women uh, learn how to sew for uh, their own purposes and for economic uh, income, as well as 
while they sew, they learn some English. It's a great organization to support. If you make a pledge for one of those items, Forward Radio will get some money and all of the cost of those items will go directly to the women who sewed them. They got a, a kitchen boa, suede, ultra suede pillows, uh, microwave pot holders, purses and tote bags. Check it all out at forwardradio.org. We've got some other great books available to you, whether you like music or uh, solutions to violence and veterans for peace. Lots of great stuff available at forwardradio.org. One item I really want to highlight at the $80 level is the WFMP insulated bottle. This is a fantastic stainless steel bottle. I've been actually using one for years now. It is incredible how long it will keep your beverages warm in the winter and cool in the summer. And you can pick one up and sport your WFMP pride today. We need your support. Now is the time to do it through April 9th at forwardradio.org. And while you're there, why don't you pick up a ticket to our talent show coming up on April 10th. That's all the time we have for. We'll be back in your ears again in one week's time here on Truth to Power. Stay well, everyone.